is Drew Hartz, and I'll be bringing the word today. I'll be coming out of the book of Jonah, starting at chapter 3, verse 10, and going all the way through chapter 4, verse 11. I'll be reading from the NRSV translation. It says, When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God changed his mind about the calamity that he had said he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. But this was very displeasing to Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said while I was still in my own country? That is why I fled to Tarshish at the beginning, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and ready to relent from punishing. And now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Then Jonah went out of the city and sat down east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade, waiting to see what would become of the city. The Lord God appointed a bush and made it come up over Jonah to give shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was very happy about the bush. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the bush so that it withered. When the sun rose, God prepared a sultry east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint and asked that he might die. He said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the bush? And he said, yes, angry enough to die. Then the Lord said, you are concerned about the bush for which you did not labor and which you did not grow. It came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not be concerned about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also many animals? Many people um, are familiar with the Jonah story. It is a pretty fantastical story that you can imagine almost being like a Disney film with just um, just... Uh, unbelievable moments, Jonah running and fleeing from God, boarding a ship, the storm and him getting thrown overboard, swallowed by a great big fish for three days, thrown up <laughs> after a while, and then finally relenting and going to give this message to Nineveh. And of course, when he gets there, if you know the story, he, he he doesn't really offer like this kind of gracious, compassionate word to, to the Ninevites. Instead, it's kind of like a um, uh, his best, you know, fire and brimstone message that he can muster up, um, basically saying that they're all damned. Um, and yet, despite that, they all respond to Jonah's message. They repent even, and, uh, you know, they're in sackcloth and ashes, and even the animals repent. Um, and because of that... Uh, as we see at the tail end of chapter three, going into chapter four, God relents, changes his mind, decides not to punish them. And it's precisely this moment here in chapter four where we get really the punchline of the book of Jonah. Um, sometimes we get caught up in the, the story 
uh, and the significance of it, um, of all these fantastical moments and, and lose sight of what the, the story of Jonah is actually trying to um, teach. The story of Jonah is actually trying to focus us in on um, God's love, right? Um, it's trying to awaken us to the enduring, steadfast, persevering love, mercy, and compassion of God that faileth not, right? Um, uh, the overwhelming radical love of God, the revolutionary love of God. Um, and so the punchline of the story is really that Jonah, um, he's like, look, I knew what was going to happen if I came, right? I knew that you were going to forgive them. I knew that you'd be slow to anger and that you'd be merciful and give them uh, uh, opp opportunity to, to be restored, right? He's like, I knew it. And his problem is, is and you got to understand who the Ninevites are. They're a part of the Syrians, and the Syrians were brutal people. They, were, they had a, a horrific reputation for just devastating their enemies, crushing them, destroying them, bringing them down to, 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 to piles, right? Whole entire cities. Um, they would impale their enemies on poles. Um, it was just vicious, violent, ugly, devastating. And so um, if you know uh, Israel itself, the Northern Kingdom was actually destroyed by Assyria, right? Of course, there's no way that Jonah wants to see um, the Ninevites uh, finding restoration, receiving forgiveness, being restored, and getting a second chance. That's not what he wants. Uh, he wants to have them get what's coming to them, right? Now, let's be, it could be really easy quickly to judge, but we all know that there's certain folks that do some evil things in this world, and we think that they need to get what's coming to them. They need to be punished. They need to get what's coming to them. Let's get a pound of flesh. Um, I certainly often tell people I resonate with Jonah. Out of, out of all the biblical characters, sometimes I deeply resonate. I get Jonah um, because Jonah's problem, he's not, his concern isn't that God is an angry, mean, uh, pathological God that just wants to harm people, just waiting to bring down the hammer, right? Um, that's not what keeps Jonah up at night. If anything, it's, it's precisely that he understands exactly God's character, um, that God is a God of love, that God is a compassionate God, a loving God, an enduring merciful God um, that, that is just waiting to, to bring us back into the fold, to restore us, um, and so that we can be a part of God's dream. And so um, that's where we find Jonah at. He's, his, his problem is not uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. It's sinners in the hands of a loving God, right? Um, and he doesn't, that's precisely what he doesn't think the Ninevites deserve at this moment. Um, there are some folks um, that we struggle with um, uh, wanting to see them also be uh, recipients and experience God's love. I resonate with Jonah on that. And, and in some ways, then, this book of Jonah reminds us of this long biblical thread. It's really not just here in Jonah where we see this emphasis on this uh, uh, gracious God, merciful God, slow to anger, enduring in love, right? Um, 
abounding in mercy. This is a theme that we see running actually throughout the biblical story, all throughout the Old Testament. We see this emphasis. This is a central characteristic and way that God is described uh, throughout the biblical story, in the Psalms, um, and even in, by the prophets here like Jonah. And so um, it, it reminds us of the, the power of love and the implications of love. Um, and I would dare to say it reminds us of the revolutionary character of love. And that's really what I want us to focus on um, just for our few moments together is to think about the revolutionary love of God. Now, when we think about the love of God, um, certainly, hopefully for us as Christians, we should first and foremost be thinking about the double commandments, right? To love God with all your heart, soul, minds, and heart, um, to with all your might, to, to love God as yourself, right? To love your neighbor as yourself. Um, and I think that when we begin to grapple with the way that uh, Jesus emphasizes the love of God and love of neighbor, that, that, that the whole law and prophets are fulfilled and hang on those teachings, then we begin to see the significance of how important love is for us in the way that we live our lives, um, the kind of people that we are, and the way that we join in with what God is doing in the world. Uh, it'd be easy to uh, emphasize and think about the ways that we love God and to think about the ways that we, um, you know, worship God and give our heart to God and uh, so devoted. And some folks focus on the devotions that they do and the ritual and practices that we have that are all uh, focused on our love of God. But what's interesting is that um, the New Testament in many ways suggests that our love of God and our love of neighbor are actually interconnected, that, that you can't separate the one from the other. In fact, not only are they inseparable, right, that you can't love, you can't hate your brother and also love God, but, but in, in a deeper way, when you get the full sense of it, you begin to realize that love of God is expressed through love of neighbor. Um, that means that, that a part of our love of God is manifested and made visible and expressed in our concrete compassion and action shown to others. Um, and that kind of begins to really expand our understanding of what love is. Now, of course, we can come up with all kinds of ideas around what we think love is. is. We can begin to, you know... Um, I sometimes talk about tough love, right? The way that we, oh, well, I'm expressing tough love. And, and sometimes the truth is when people talk about tough love, it's not always actual love. Like when you think about the ways that um, some parents sometimes abuse children, right? And they'll say it's just tough love, um, leaving deep physical and also emotional scars, psychological scars on young people. Just because we call it tough doesn't mean it's actual love. Um, and so I think that... You've got to have a, a good understanding of what love is. You know, 1 John 3, 16, 17, and 18 um, give us a great picture. Um, it says, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. Then it goes on and talks about how can somebody have the love of God in them and not respond to the needs of others, right, with compassion and action, right? Um, it goes on, we can't love in word, in speech, but in truth, and action. And so we've got to actually embody um, the kind of love that is seen and made visible in the person of Jesus Christ. 
um, he who clashed with evil and overcame evil with good um, and provided an opportunity for those that um, that would dare put their trust in him and follow after his way, um, that, that, that they too could also be joined into God's reign, God's dream, God's beloved community. And so when we think about love in that sense, from the first John 3, 16, 17, and 18 standpoint, we begin to realize that love is, is not just sentimentality. It's not just getting into our feelings. It's not just being moved internally, um, but that love is compassion and action thrown together, right? Compassion and action. And compassion in the New Testament is actually really a powerful word because it's actually about one's bowels being moved, um, that kind of compassion that you're almost like physically, um, so that the needs of others, the suffering of others moves you so deeply um, that, that you're almost physically ill, right? Um, that that's the kind of compassion you have and action, that you actually respond and, and, and meet the needs, that you respond to the suffering, you respond to the oppression, you respond to the violence that's occurring and targeting someone else, um, that that's the kind of love that we're being invited to live out in the way of Jesus, exactly as Jesus modeled for us, that while we were in captivity, while we were struggling, while we were suffering, um, Jesus loved us enough that he... Uh, acted. He responded in compassion and action on our behalf. One of the things that's really powerful when we begin to have this broader understanding of the love of God is to understand um, not just love from God that we can then embody and participate in, but to understand love's goal. What, what is love working toward, towards? Uh, and I would suggest that love's goal is God's dream of beloved community. It's God's dream for us, right? For beloved communities. In the Old Testament, there's this idea of shalom that is the harmony and the flourishing and mutuality and reconciliation of all creation, the embrace uh, where justice and peace and righteousness uh, are, are, are happening and are flourishing in our world. Um, it's this uh, state of how things ought to be. And in many ways, it ties then to uh, New Testament ideas around new creation or the kingdom of God, um, um, you know, the new Jerusalem, right? It's this new world where suffering is is over, where, where tears are no more, and where things, where we have an interrelationship with one another, right? Where one suffers, all suffer. Where one rejoices, all rejoice. Because we're bound up and tied up into each other's lives in the way that God desired and intended for us all along. Um, it's God's dream of beloved community, a community of giving, receiving, and sharing love with one another. And so if we understand where we are going, if that's the end goal that we're supposed to keep our eyes towards, right, hungering and thirsting for that world, for that world set right, um, where beloved and beloved community actually exists, um, if that's our goal, then we need to be living and embodying um, God's reign that has broken into our world right now, um, and living into that, pursuing it, striving for it together um, as a, a visible manifestation of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ in our world. And so if we're thinking about that then and we think about right now all the, you know, I think so many have seen just the amount of racial violence that has plagued our worlds, the 
police brutality, um, the harm against indigenous communities all around our world, um, uh, just the devastating way that white supremacy has just wreaked havoc on humanity, has given us a diseased social imagination so that we don't see each other as we ought to. Um, certainly in my country, we can see how racism um, impacts, you know, uh, health, uh, health care, who has access to health care, livable wages, jobs, adequate housing, um, the disproportionate way that the justice system impacts and targets some communities while protecting others. Uh, we can see um, the differential funding in education. We can see the ongoing harm against uh, indigenous communities in this land. Um, there's just so many ways that, that, uh, that we see harm being done. And the temptation for many churches is to just um, respond individualistically and show compassion to each individual who's been through those systems. And, and we ought to have uh, mercy ministries in place where we can respond to the needs of others. But I think that when we begin to truly have love for um, not only individuals, but for people groups, right? And to see the harm, the systemic, that's the widespread harm that's happening within our society, um, then we realize that love compels us to more than just compassion and mercy ministries. It actually calls us to, to seek the justice for all people, right? Um, th there's a saying, you know, they say, give a man a fish and he can eat for a day. Uh, teach a man to fish and he can eat for a lifetime. But but sometimes I always ask the question, you know, but what do, what does the person do when, when they don't have access to the pond, right? When there's a wall built up and they don't have access to the pond, then what are they supposed to do? And so in those cases, then all of a sudden we realize that there are sometimes deeper structural issues in place where individualistic acts cannot solve all our issues. And we've got to actually go deeper, um, pursuing justice, setting things right, um, where, where the, uh, uh, the mountains are brought down and the, and the valleys are lifted up um, because God is uh, bringing in a new world, God's Revolutionary love is is changing the landscape of our society. Um, as as it says in Luke, you know the the mighty are brought down from the thrones and the humble and lowly are lifted up. Right? Um, what does it mean to participate in the revolutionary love of God that is seeking to build and pursue beloved community uh, for all of creation? And so we've got to begin when we think about love's goal, that is seeking and pursuing and chasing after um, beloved community, then we've got to understand how do we participate in that work of what God is doing in the world. Now, one of the big challenges in actually participating in pursuing beloved community in creation is that we often ourselves are impacted by what I call the love gap. Uh, the love gap is is basically the idea that that we are all socialized. Um, different communities, every community is socialized to love some folks and um, and to have compassion and respond in action for some folks while remaining in uh, with apathy and disregard for others. Right. 
And so, so our love gets limited. It's not complete. It's not perfect, right? That's what Jesus means when he tells us to love our enemies, um, to say our love is perfect and complete. It's not about doing it perfectly in the a kind of that Western kind of way, but the fullness, completeness of our love um, that has no gaps, right? But too often we have gaps in our love, um, places where we remain uh, silent um, and, and, and have inaction in response to the suffering of others, um, that we have disregard to the systemic oppression and exploitation of people um, that, that, that we've got to respond and recognize that we there's this temptation in group out group kind of orientation that human beings often have, um, where we will be inclined to not receive the stories of certain people who are suffering as sacred and not carry that with us and to allow that to change us to be moved by what they're experiencing, um, to, to, to be so moved that we um, act in solidarity, joining in with them, co-suffering with them as God has co-suffered in the person of Jesus Christ with us. And so we have this love gap that we've got to uh, respond to. And so some are beginning to awaken, right, to the, to the suffering of others in our world um, beyond just the realm of their own personal community, but realizing that, that white supremacy, again, is one of the major ways that has disciplined us to love some people and to not love others, to hear certain stories and to be aware of the struggles of certain people and to be completely ignorant, I call it willfully ignorant, of the realities of other communities and people groups. Um, and so we have to think about whose stories are we hearing, whose voices are shaping us, um, and who are we not letting in, right? Um, that Those are realities that we've got to deal with. And so when we move from thinking about the love from God that we can join in with and thinking about love's goal, um, which is beloved community, and then thinking about the love gap, um, the way that we've been socialized, then we're ready to think about the revolutionary love of God. Um, you know, just like Jonah, we must be converted, right? Um, from the love gap to love's goal, right? Um, and I think that um, one of the people that best uh, embodied and demonstrated what that meant was Dr. King. Dr. King fully understood what that meant. Um, he understood the power of love. He would go on and on about how uh, he understood that, you know, uh, oppressed people um, often are at a disadvantage in society, but they have this powerful weapon, and that's love, right? In fact, he said it's the most powerful weapon available to the oppressed, powerful enough to even convert an enemy into a friend, right? That, that, that can take someone who is uh, targeting you, trying to do you harm, and, and through love, through the means of love, it can actually transform them to actually join in the, the struggle for justice. Um, and so it's that kind of love um, that we all have at our disposal. Um, Dr. King understood that, that we needed to move away from the kind of one-dimensional characterizations and demonizations of our enemies, right? Um, and that we need to begin to see them as made in the image of God, as um, we need to actually be able to see that we have shared humanity, right? Um, we are all part of God's creation and that we all have inherent worth. And the reality is that when you begin to, to, to stop demonizing and 
offering simplistic one-dimensional characterizations of other people, you begin to realize that the folks who may be your enemies are also captive to evil, right? Um, that they are also captive, that they need to be set free from something also. And when you begin to see that they're complex, multidimensional people who are also uh, captive to evil, to injustice, to wrong, um, it doesn't mean that we then condone what they do. It doesn't mean that we don't stand against the harm, but it does also realize that our, our enemy is not flesh and blood, but it's the actual systems and powers and forces of evil in our world that need to be defeated. And so we, we realize that we, we need to struggle to defeat and undermine the systems of injustice, uh, but we're not here to destroy people. We destroy the systems of injustice, not people. Um, the love of God, the revolutionary love of God invites us into a new imagination for how to actually seek change. And it actually then broadens as we look into the public square and see the suffering, the disproportionate suffering because of how we've actually designed and structured our worlds, right? Uh, institutions, power dynamics, wealth, all these things in ways that harm some um, and, and advantage others that when we begin to see that, we can then um, respond in love, not to seek to destroy others, right? Not to want to be like Jonah, where you know you're going to get your pound of flat, you're going to get you know your get what's coming to you, um, but rather we see that they also need to be liberated, right? There's a kind of liberation that that the other folks need that they don't even necessarily understand that they need um, because they haven't yet um, been liberated by the revolutionary love of God. And so we destroy systems, not people. Um, that's why King understood, um, he deeply believed that the nonviolent resistance, right, and organizing and work on the ground from below, struggling for justice, um, that those are the means of love, right? That this is the way of love um, in the public square when working for justice, right? Um, this is the way that we struggle. This is the way that we pursue that beloved community um, by destroying the systems of injustice, um, by organizing, by movement work, um, by getting our hands dirty, collaborating uh, in solidarity with our neighbors and especially those who are disproportionately suffering in our world today. This is uh, broadening, not just compassion work, not just mercy ministries. Those are important. I always tell people you don't want to uh, struggle uh, for a world that people won't make it to. Right. So you got to do both. You got to care for people's immediate needs. But then we've also got to if we love people and creation and pursuing God's beloved community, then we've also got to make changes to the very way that we structure our world in ways that do systemic violence to some and do and are oppressive and harmful for some and not others. We destroy the systems. I'm going to close just with this quick story from Dr. King. Dr. King uh, was in Birmingham in 1963. He went there. It was uh, their goal was to just undermine the uh, harm that was being done in Birmingham, one of the most racially segregated cities in the South at that time. And one of the challenges is that people were not showing up uh, for the movement as much. They were running out of bail funds um, and Easter weekend was actually approaching. And, and so they didn't know what to do. And so one day they're sitting in this hotel room with a bunch of the ministers and leaders there and they're arguing and debating what to do next. Should Dr. King go off and raise funds? Should they go against this injunction against this next march that they had planned? Um, should they... 
um, take a break. Maybe some of the ministers, because they were um, Easter weekend was coming, they're like, we can't get arrested over Easter weekend. You know, we got to be in church. You got big fancy services to uphold, right? And, and so there's all this debating about what they should do and what, where they needed to go. And Dr. King, the whole time is just silent. He's just listening to everybody else as they're arguing about what to do. And so suddenly Dr. King, he uh, gets up and he leaves the room as they're like bickering and debating about what kind of moves they should make. He leaves and there's, imagine there's a living room in the hotel and then like a bedroom with a door. He goes and closes the door and they're out and he's gone. And for a few minutes, he's away. And then suddenly out of nowhere, the door swings open and Dr. King comes out. But something's changed about him now. He's changed his clothes. If you can imagine, often with images of Dr. King, he's usually wearing a black uh, suit with a white T-shirt um, and, and black tie, just kind of simple, classic look. Um, now, all of a sudden, he's changed his clothes, and Dr. King is now wearing a blue work shirt and blue jeans. He comes out wearing a blue work shirt and blue jeans, changed his clothes, and the moment he came out, everybody knew exactly what that meant. It meant it's time to get to work, right? It's time to get to work. Um, and so they knew that, uh, that, that they had to get to work. And so they decided that they would um, go and they would go against the injunction. And on, on Passover weekend and, good, and um, Easter weekend, they actually go out, they march, they get arrested, they go against the injunction. And that's when Dr. King gets thrown into the Birmingham jail. In fact, writes that famous letter, letter from the Birmingham jail, which if you haven't read, you ought to. And so uh, Dr. King then um, becomes really a great example of what the revolutionary love of God actually looks like. This is the opposite posture of Jonah, who, who actually was resisting the implications of what it means to love others, right? Um, instead, King himself understands what love is, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for one another, embodies the revolutionary love of God in the public square, uh, seeking justice for those who are disproportionately suffering and oppressed in that city. And so uh, when he put on his blue jeans, I believe that it's an invitation for us to put on our blue jeans, too. It's time for the church to not continue with disregard and the love gap. I um, mean, sometimes even worse, sometimes participating and complicit in the racism and injustice in our society. Now it's time for us to put on our blue jeans. Um, let's put on our blue jeans for justice. Let's put on our blue jeans for righteousness. Let's put on our blue jeans for, for shalom, for, for beloved community. Let's put on our blue jeans for, for the people that are suffering under police brutality or uh, for people who are uh, hungry and uh, who don't have enough food today, people who, who are homeless Let's put on our blue jeans or for folks that don't have adequate housing, uh, for our indigenous communities that have been taken advantage of and exploited over and over and over again. Um, let's put on our blue jeans and speak up for truth, stand up for righteousness, to let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Um, we know what love looks like. It looks like Jesus Christ embodying his love for us. Um, and we ought to do that not just for individuals, but also for communities that are disproportionately suffering in our world today. And so my prayer is that we would um, catch a vision of God's love, right? Catch a vision of God's 
goal for love, which is beloved community, um, that we would do our self-examination work for the ways that we've been caught up in the love gap, and then ultimately that we would participate and join in with the revolutionary love of God. God bless.